Back in May, I think it was May, my family and I had the opportunity with my parents to go down to Florida and go to a place called Disney World. Anybody ever heard of it? Any Disney fans? No, actually. It's because you've been there and it's chaos, right? Absolutely. Well, we were, we were super excited. I had not been to Disney World before. Uh, my kids had never been to Disney World before, so we were all super excited. We did four days in the parks, and I mean, we did four full days in the parks. We were that family that was waiting at the gates before the day started uh, to get in, and then we stayed there until close every single night. I mean, security never actually had to kick us out, but it was close a couple of times. And it was absolutely uh, just a blast. We had maps of all the different attractions. We had come up with these plans so that we could hit the park and do it efficiently, like ride to ride to ride. And these things called Fast Pass, where you can actually find the Fast Passes on your phone so that when you get off a ride, you can just go right to the next ride. And there's this line of people, and you're like, you are suckers, (laughs) because we have Fast Pass. And we can just go right up to it. And we'd plan this out so that while we were on one ride, we would be scheduling our next Fast Pass to go to the next ride. It was just a breakneck pace, and we absolutely had a ball. But as the week progressed, like day two, it became, it became really clear that my family was not going to be able to keep up this pace. This is my daughter, Ellie, who you can see is just completely cashed out. And, and I began to realize that this magical moment was going to be less and less magical for my four-year-old if we tried to hit it that hard every day. In fact, by day three, my parents said, how about you guys go to Disney World? We'll go to McDonald's with Ellie. And so they brought her to the Happy Land or whatever and literally called us in Disney World and said, she just wants to stay at McDonald's. Which means either that their playland was awesome, or I don't, know, I don't know what that means, but at any rate, it makes sense. I mean, I saw parents all week long that were there and who had like the, the Mickey Mouse ears and the t-shirts and the gear and the lightsabers and the whole deal with kids who were crying. And you'd see parents saying some version of, do you have any idea how much we spent for this vacation? You will have fun right now. We are making memories. <laughs> As fun as it was, by the end of the time, even, even our family, my perfect family, uh, was kind of at each other, frankly, and there were tears and yelling and all kinds of magical memories. Uh, and, and I remember one night, in fact, we're, we're driving away, it's late at night, we're driving away from one of the attractions, and my dad's driving the SUV, and literally the boys are in the very, very back seat, you know, the third row seating, and they're fighting and they're at each other, and my dad just pulls the car over. And we all know that grandpa's about to blow. My dad, who does not blow, my dad who's here, my dad who does not blow is about to blow. And suddenly it was just silent in the car. Like, okay, we will get it together right now, people. It's funny, you know, this is all at Disney, the happiest place on earth. And, it, and it's funny, but it's kind of a snapshot, honestly, of how a lot of us do life all the time. I mean, sort of this, this pace that we, that, we, that we live at where we want to experience every moment of every day. We try to pack so much in. It's kind of a snapshot of where we are at as a culture. And I think, honestly, a snapshot of where we're at as the church in America. We want to live well and we want to get the most out of life. But in the pursuit of living well, far too often, as Chris pointed out last week, we're living sort of in the danger zone. We're living close to burnout. We're living this point of exhaustion. And not only does it leave us exhausted, but unfortunately we can also leave this sort of trail of relational wreckage behind us because we just can't live at that pace. So we're in this series called Stretched. And in Stretched, we're looking at just how crazy full life is and asking the question, is this really what God intended for us? Or are we being stretched in some ways that, that simply aren't even healthy for us? And, and are we maybe not being stretched in some ways that would be good for us and, and healthy for us? Chris did this great illustration last week. We had this big Home Depot five-gallon bucket. 
And they're supposed to kind of represent our capacity, our time, how much we can actually carry in life. And then he had this big stack of wood blocks that represent all the different blocks that we need to get in. Our career, our school, our family, romance, dating, health, fitness, all these different things. And he put the blocks into the bucket. And it became very apparent very quickly that the bucket fills up. And once it's full, there's just not time left for really even good things to fill in there. But then he went on to say, and I think this is really telling, he went on to say, as Christ followers, we have a whole separate expectation. We have a whole separate stack of blocks that we need to get in. Like, like Bible time and prayer and devotion and service and going to church and all these different things. And our buckets are just as full. And so on top of everything else, we've got the shame and the guilt of these things that are supposed to be life-giving, but become just sort of these guilty shoulds that we're failing to actually accomplish. Like we're, we're failing at getting everything else done and now we can fail at this too. In fact, he said that Christians are actually in some ways worse off than non-Christians. Because at least non-Christians can walk around not bearing the guilt and the shame of not being good Christians. It's crazy. Is that what Jesus meant in Matthew 11 when he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. I think we have to admit that a lot of times the life we live just isn't very well aligned to to the life that Jesus is talking about here. There's a quote that I came across this week in my study from Matthew Henry's commentary. It says, we make nothing of our religion if we do not make heaven of it. We're meant to, in our practices, in our lives, in the ways that we worship and do life, to give a picture of what the kingdom of God is supposed to be. And if our religion isn't that, then we are making nothing. Nothing of value, nothing of import. Just like Israel in the Old Testament, the church, now we as followers of Christ, are meant to be examples, to live lives that can demonstrate to the watching world what it is to live with God as our king to live exemplary lives, ordered according to God's plan so that we can flourish and thrive and demonstrate to the world through our health and joy and trust and love and peace and rest that God's way is the best way. We are meant to be light in a dark world. But as Chris pointed out last week, instead of burning brightly, many of us are burning out. Jesus in Matthew 6, use some of that same comparative language between his followers and non-believers. When he said, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. He says, yes, I know the basic blocks that need to go into your life. I know your bucket. I know that you need to get in career and food and housing and shelter and emotional health and all these different things, but don't spend your time, don't spend your energy worrying about those things. I've got it. I can meet your basic needs. Then Jesus, oh, he says, that's what the unbelievers do. That's what the pagans do. That's, that's what people who don't follow me do. You as my followers live differently. Show the world what life can be. Then Jesus, as he so often does, turns the order of things on his head. And he calls us, and he specifically says how we are to reorder our lives. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things would be given to you. 
Chris introduced this last week as a memory verse. We've not done a memory verse as a church together for a long time. But this is it. This is for the series. So let's say this together. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. He says, not only do you seek it, but seek it first. Not after life is already full and we're at our breaking point. Not, you know, when life is more in control and I'll have time for church. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. I think many of us, myself included, tend to approach life like, well, all right, we found a good home and we found a good school district for our kids to go to and we found a good gym where we can go and we can work out and we found a good soccer team for our kid to be on. Now let's kind of find that cherry on top and find a good church that we can be a part of. But the kingdom of God is not a life additive, according to Jesus. It's a life foundation. It's a life framework around everything, around which everything else is built, upon which everything else must be built. It's not just a new paradigm. It's a whole different way, a whole new way of doing life. And I think last week as we looked at this verse and as we talked about what it means to seek the kingdom of God, I, I was left with this question like, okay, I get that. I agree that we need to do that. I agree that we need to seek the kingdom of God first. But what does that mean? Does it simply mean try harder? Or are there specific things that we need to be doing in order to experience the kingdom in our life? What does it look like, not in theoretical terms or theological terms, but lived out every single day of my life? What does it mean to reorder our lives to live kingdomly. I think we get it conceptually. We get it like, yeah, you know what? This is not manageable, the way that we live lives. We recognize that we are at a breaking point, many of us. But what we aren't understanding is, what does it mean to actually live this stuff out in daily life? And as we were talking about this this week with Chris and Brandon and the other staff, we were realizing there may be some things we need to actually add to our life in order to be able to subtract the things that need to be subtracted. We may need to add some additional blocks in order to identify which blocks need to come out of our life. Chris pointed out last week that right after Jesus said that his yoke was easy and his burden was light, he immediately followed that up by teaching on the subject of Sabbath. And Sabbath is something we just don't talk about in our culture. I mean, it's something that's kind of become like old-fashioned or maybe even legalistic. When you say Sabbath in our culture, most people think of a day of the week, like Sunday. It's the Sabbath, the Lord's day. And it's, it's distinguished basically by you can't buy alcohol or cars, right? That's what Sabbath means in our culture. It's been, it's been reduced to that. And yet Jesus talks about it a lot. Scripture has a lot to say about it. So I think we have to look at that and say, if that is what Jesus chose to point to when he talked about his yoke being light, let's look at what he has to say. There's a story um, in, in Matthew. You know, Jewish law prohibited any form of work on the Sabbath. You couldn't you know, gather your crops. You couldn't feed. You couldn't even cook. You certainly couldn't heal people. But in Matthew, there's a story where Jesus heals a man with a deformed hand. I want to look at that story. But we're actually going to look at it from, from Luke, uh, where he tells the same story with just a little bit more detail. It starts off like this. On another Sabbath day, so in other words, here's another Sabbath story. A man with a deformed right hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. So they're watching. And if I'm, if I'm Jesus at this point, I'm thinking, okay, I totally want to help you, buddy, with the hand thing. I totally do. How's tomorrow? Because today's the Sabbath. Or, or can we meet out back after, after the teaching time and I'll take care of this thing on the down low? But that's not what he does. 
But Jesus knew their thoughts. He said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. So the man came forward. Then Jesus said to his critics, I have a question for you. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them one by one. And then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At this, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with him. In Matthew, it actually says at that point, they started planning how they would kill Jesus. Because he was turning everything upside down. He was messing with their systems. Jesus intentionally brings this guy up in front of everyone, where everyone can see what he does. He does this healing right in front of all these religious leaders. It's like he's trying to pick a fight. Or maybe trying to make a point. What's his point? That Sabbath doesn't matter? That we can just get rid of it? That we just abolish Sabbath? I mean, that's often how we hear this preached or, or talked about. Like, Sabbath is one of those Old Testament things. It's like, like eating shellfish. We don't, we just ignore that. We all eat shellfish. Uh, even the Old Testament says we're not supposed to. So it's just like that. We don't have to follow that anymore. Is that what Jesus was trying to say? Maybe, but if you look at the rest of Jesus' life, the rest of his ministries is accounted in, in the Gospels. He actually observes the Sabbath most of the time. The only exceptions are here in one other place where he feeds the hungry on the Sabbath. So what is exactly his point? He doesn't come to abolish the law, to abolish the Sabbath, but to fulfill it. I think Jesus comes to remind people that the Sabbath was given as a gift, that Sabbath was meant to be a time of nourishment and and fulfillment and healing and restoration, a time to save life. Jesus didn't come to, to do away with Sabbath. Jesus came to actually call people back to what Sabbath was always supposed to be about. He's not saying ignore the law. He's saying the law was given. The point of Sabbath was given so that you might experience the life that you were supposed to, that you might have this good gift given to you for your benefit, for your restoration, for your health and your healing. But you've turned it into a system of rules and regulations. And it's unmanageable. When the story is told in Mark, it says that Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus can speak with authority on how and why Sabbath was created because it was Jesus that had established Sabbath from the very beginning. Way back in Genesis 1 and 2, it says that God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he Sabbathed. He rested. Have you ever thought about that? Like, why that detail is included? Usually when I'm telling a story of what I accomplished, I tell the stuff I accomplished, not the stuff I didn't do. Like, what happened after I accomplished I accomplished resting isn't what happens after the story. It's why the rest of the story happened. He created so that he could rest so that we could Sabbath so that he could enjoy the creation that he'd made. It's the life, the way that he intended. It's the life according to the kingdom of God. God doesn't rest because he's tired. God doesn't rest because he was super efficient and got the job done ahead of projections. Right? Dan, uh, I believe it's Alander in his book, Sabbath, the Ancient Practices, says that God didn't rest in the sense of taking a nap or chilling out. Instead, God celebrated and delighted in his creation. God entered the joy of his creation and set it free. It's a beautiful picture of what Sabbath is. God entering in and simply enjoying, relishing, loving, playing, being in relationship with 
And then he goes on to say, what would you do for 24 hours if the only criteria were to pursue your deepest joy? God rested because everything was done. It was perfect. And it was his deepest joy. We are his deepest joy. Creation is his deepest joy. Perfect creation, perfect relationship. And God chose to rest. God chose to include this as part of the creation narrative as one-seventh of the days that it took because he wanted to demonstrate for us what life is supposed to be, what the kingdom of God is supposed to be, this integrated life where it's kingdom living, where we work in this cosmic rhythm together with God. We work together with God for six days, and then on the seventh day, we stop working with God, and we simply dwell with God. And with one another, enjoying and delighting in God and in each other, resting in creation as it should be. This theme of God calling his people to return to rest with him, to Sabbath with him, is reiterated throughout the Old Testament. Many of you probably were familiar with the story from childhood of Israel wandering for 40 uh, years through the desert. And in the desert, there was no food, but God miraculously provided manna from heaven that would come down from heaven and provide them everything they needed. But according to God, he said, six days a week, I will give you this manna. And on the sixth day, you should collect enough for the seventh. So that on the seventh, there's no collection. You simply can delight in one another and delight in me. It's a picture of God calling them to a very intentional rhythm of what Sabbath can look like. It's it's sort of a microcosm of what creation was supposed to be. Sabbath is a return, at least in part, to the way things were meant to be from the very beginning. Then later, in Exodus, God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, and guess what commandment comes in number four? Right in the middle. Keep the Sabbath holy. We got one person who knows the commandments right up here. Keep the Sabbath holy. Sabbath makes the top 10 list of things that matter most to God. It's right up there with murder. It's right up there with don't worship other gods. He says, keep the Sabbath holy. In fact, of all the Ten Commandments, he actually gives the most words, the most detail to this this idea of of Sabbath. You remember those old Verizon ads where they would show the maps of the coverage areas? You can see like Verizon's got all the red and T-Mobile's got nothing. This is from a couple years ago. But you can see just at a glance that obviously Verizon is going to be the best coverage. You can just look at it and absolutely know. Well, I thought it'd be interesting to take the Ten Commandments and do something of a similar thing with it. So here's a picture of the whole Ten Commandments. Don't bother trying to read it. It's way too small. But this is the Ten Commandments, right? And this section right here, that's the Sabbath. All right? But I want to go even clearer than this. And so I, I made a little diagram that shows all the different Ten Commandments words Use Okay, words used. So, for instance, no coveting stuff. That gets uh, about 25 words. No false testimony, no stealing. No murder is actually like six. I mean, it's not actually that many significant. It's not that significant. I don't think we can necessarily say that God doesn't care about murder. But here's Sabbath. Here's Sabbath. It's like 103 words. Far more than any other words committed to that subject. Now, I think it's a stretch to say that just because God puts it right in the middle and uses more words than any other... Thing that he cares most about it, but I, I think it's I think it's telling. I think we have to pause and say this is clearly something that matters tremendously to God. So why? It's weird, right? Why does God care so much about Sabbath? Is it just that he you know wants to make sure that we get our day off? This is like God's HR policy. Maybe I mean I think there's truth to that, but I think it's so much more than that. These aren't a list of suggestions. 
These are Ten Commandments. And so God commanded, not suggested, that his people, that Israel observe the Sabbath because they were his chosen people. Chosen to be a model to the world. Chosen to demonstrate to the world what life was supposed to be. To demonstrate that God is good and that he takes care of his people. To demonstrate that a life of depending on God is better and richer and safer and fuller than a life of depending on yourself. To demonstrate that a life lived in such a way as to regularly stop work and to return to what matters most to God. Our love for him and our love for one another. To live that kind of life for a watching world. To be reminded and to demonstrate that their identity was in God. Their provider, their protector, their sustainer. To demonstrate what it's like to live as Sabbath people who live out of Sabbath. You see, Israel wasn't called to simply take a Sabbath once a week. They were called to be a Sabbath people who live Sabbath lives. Whose work and time and rhythms of life are all oriented and centered around this idea of Sabbath, of rest, of delight. Whose six days of work serve the Sabbath and not the other way around. God makes this a commandment to Israel, and I think in very real ways that we have to consider to us, because failure to observe Sabbath was, and perhaps still is, more than just a failure to take a day off. It's a failure in real ways to be the Sabbath people that God called them to be. A failure to rest in and rely on God. A failure to be the model to the rest of the world of what life is supposed to be. And that sounds heavy. That sounds really guilting and shaming. Like we're back trying to pile stuff on the bucket that's already full. Don't hear it that way. Instead, hear that God is so much more that he wants life to be. That simply isn't the picture of what God wanted it to be. He said, rest and delight and joy and health and fullness should be exemplary of your life. And if it's not, then we have to look at what has brought us to that place. I think we have to ask ourselves, do we, do our lives look like Sabbath people? In seminary, uh, one of my professors, Joel Lawrence, made this comparison that was really helpful for me between what it looks like in practical, tangible ways, what it looks like to be Sabbath people, or, or, or contrasted that against what it means to be striving people, people that are of the Sabbath who live from a place of health and wholeness and joy, or people that live from a place of always striving and trying. Let's look at some of these. He said that striving souls seek their identity and their skills, their accomplishments, their career, their ability to provide for themselves. And so as a result, they experience anxiety, fear, lack of satisfaction, self-doubt, restlessness, a deep need for the approval of others, a deep-seated insecurity. Am I putting in enough hours at work? Is my job really secure? Does my spouse still find me attractive? Am I successful? These questions that just plague them. But then he says, by contrast, people who are Sabbath people, Sabbath souls experience something so different. They're at rest, and they thrive in their relationship with God. They rest as friends of God, ready to accept his authority and ready to accept whatever he has for them. They stop comparing. And I think comparing is where so much of our time and our energy goes. Looking at other people around us and feeling inferior to them uh, because we don't have what they have. Or looking at other people's lives and feeling superior to them. They don't compare at all. 
It's just off the table. Souls that are secure in God's will no longer strive for ourselves. And success is defined simply as being faithful to God. It's not a question of do they work. We're all called to work and work hard for the glory of God. It's a question of where they're working from. The place from which they work. Sabbath souls work hard, but they work from a place where they have this pre-existing condition of peace. A sense of self, of who they are in God. Of contentment. Of relying on God. And I think that leaves us with asking the question, where are we at? Where are you at this morning? Which of these two comparisons, the Sabbath souls or the striving souls, sounds more like your life? I, you know, some of you don't know me well yet. Uh, and some of you know me really well. And those who know me really well would probably say that I don't necessarily naturally live as a Sabbath soul. Uh, I tend to be a little bit anxiety-ridden, honestly. Uh, I tend to work hard and push hard and drive hard. Um, I live sometimes well into that danger zone. And, and I'm guessing I'm not alone in that. As you look at your own life, would you describe your home life, for instance, as being a place of Sabbath and rest or of stress and anxiety? As you are at the front end of career, maybe, and parenting and all these different things that we have to put in these buckets or these, these blocks we need to put in our buckets, do you approach them from a place of fear and anxiety and stress and striving? Or do you trust that God is really in control? What goals have you established in your career? And how much are you relying on yourself to meet those goals? And maybe there's some here today that are in a very different place in life that, that as you're approaching retirement, does the idea of how you're going to spend your days when you don't know where to go, when you don't go to that workplace, does that scare you? Does the idea that all that you've accomplished and all that you've accumulated over the years could be taken away at any moment if the stock market crashes or if the wrong person is elected to the government? To, to the government? Do you live in a place of fear or a place of contentment? I mean, I get it. That's normal. All of us experience that at some point, but I think we have to pause and look at that and say, what should it tell us? And again, I say that not to guilt any of us. This is normal. But I say it to invite us to a different way. To seek first the kingdom. Work is good, but it's not a God. It's not what defines us. It's not ultimately what sustains us. The Sabbath mark not just your calendar, but your life. Would the people in your life say that you're a Sabbath soul? We first addressed this a couple years ago. And at the time, my wife and I uh, looked at our lives and realized that at the time I was in school and I was doing seminary and working full time and three young kids, like our life was out of control. And so we actually sat down and we together put together a spreadsheet, like an Excel spreadsheet, which sounds really contrived, uh, and forced. But the truth is there's a, there's a very fine line between contrived and intentional. And I think living kingdomly takes a high level of intentionality. And we actually sat down and we figured out where was our time going? Where was our, our life going? So that, that we just never felt like we had time together as a family to simply relish and be together with friends. And so we intentionally structured our life in such a way that laundry happened on this day. And if it didn't, it's okay. We structured our lives so that, so that we collected manna on sixth day and had a day that we could just rest and be together as a family. And then my wife went back to work and our kids went to school and sports happened. And two years later, a lot of those things have come back and they've crowded out that Sabbath. Now, if we get a Sunday afternoon, that might be our best shot at Sabbath. And so it's time for me, for us, 
to once again go through that work of evaluating where is our time going and where can we cheat? That's homework that I've got to work out. But I would encourage you that maybe there's others in this room that need to do that very same work. I would encourage you this week to take some time and simply write down how you're spending your time. It doesn't have to be a spreadsheet. It can be on a napkin. But take some time and just evaluate where is your time, this most valuable of assets that we have, going. And then ask yourself, where can you cheat? How can you, work, how can you do the work of collecting manna for six days but then rest? one. How can you begin to build this kingdom value of Sabbath into your life? And then try it. My professor had us try it once. He asked us to structure one week so that we could take a Sabbath and then afterwards take a few moments just to reflect on the impact that it made. I would extend the same challenge to you. Try it for one week. It doesn't have to be this week. Try it for one week. Choose a day and then get your laundry and your homework and everything else done in advance so that you can truly Sabbath Then when it's done, look back. And Sabbath can look like a lot of things. Someone after the first service said, well, can I, can I do yard work on the Sabbath? And I went, well, it depends. I mean, like if you sit at a desk all week long, then there's a very good chance that going out and actually being in your yard and enjoying and playing and working and digging. Like for me, that's actually really relaxing. That looks like Sabbath for me because I sit at a desk all week long. Sabbath, you figure out what Sabbath looks like. For God, it was a chance just to, to engage and relax and enjoy and, and, and interact with creation. What does it look like for you? And then sit down and, and evaluate it. Look back. Talk about it as a family. Talk about it as a small group. What did you have to do in order to be at Sabbath? How did you interact with your family, with friends? Was it difficult? What impact did it have? And how could this become a part of every week? I think this idea of learning to establish a rhythm of being Sabbath people is going to take some preparation. It's going to take some work. It's going to mean adding something to life in order to subtract the things that that need to go. It's going to mean that you may need to grocery shop the day before. It may mean that you need to turn off notifications on your phone or on your social media so you can truly unplug. It means that we will trust like the Israelites that God will provide, that he will give us the manna. Will we trust God enough to obey his command to stop striving and simply be, be still, be Sabbath people? Sabbath is a commandment, not a suggestion of God, but it's also a gift, a gift that takes work and preparation and intentionality, but it's worth it. A gift that if you will accept it, will allow you to live the life that God wants for you, that God has for you, and that God demonstrated for you. So that your life might be a demonstration to the world of what life is really supposed to be. Let me pray for us. God, we started off this time uh, singing this song of binding our hearts to you. And acknowledging to you and to one another that we are prone to wander. God, as we come back to this, this idea of Sabbath that is so central to the picture that you paint, that you've made it right up there with murder, you've made it right up there with worshiping other gods, it is a huge deal for you. And yet in so many ways, we've just, it's just a non-issue for us. It's not even something we think about. God, we repent. We repent for that. And God, we ask that you would once again realign us, reorient us to your heart, to your desires, that we could model that for the world around us. God, we ask you to bind our hearts 
to you. Bind our, our minds and our eyes and our lives and our order to you. Help us to take these first steps. Do it by the power of your Holy Spirit in us. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.